MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, August 9th, 2021. Today I'll be speaking with the host of the Start Me Up podcast, author, the amazing Kimberly Johnson. You absolutely love her. I know you follow her on Twitter if you don't do it now. We're going to talk about the Department of Justice and what's going on, the insurrection, whether the DOJ is investigating. And, and then after that, I will be speaking with a professor of history at the University of Texas, Austin. He's the host of This is Democracy podcast. His name is Jeremy Surrey. And I hope you enjoy that interview and I hope you enjoy these chats. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Today, I am honored to be joined by the host of the Start Me Up podcast and the author of the book Peyton's Choice. Please welcome Kimberly Johnson. Hi, Kimberly. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ah, now no problem. Love you. Love your podcast. Love Start Me Up. You're over on the Sexy Liberal Network. Our buddies, Stephanie Miller and that whole crew absolutely love (laughs) the work that they do. And I love the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. And you invited me on your show. And I wanted to have you on my show because I think that we had a really, really meaningful discussion the last time we talked. You know, I think that you're your voice is so important. And everyone, if you're not following Kimberly Johnson on, on Twitter, on the socials, you, you definitely need to. It's a really, really great, you're just a great thought leader. You're a great voice. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> so today I wanted to talk about, first of all, I just finished watching the select committee interview the four officers, four of the officers that were attacked yeah. during the insurrection. And there seemed to be a very common message at the end in the closing statements, which are, you know, very impactful and important. Everyone said, we're officers. We investigate below us, but we can't investigate above us. We need you to find out and investigate who sent the mob, who sent, who who led the attack. And I believe Officer Dunn said that, you know, this there was a hitman. And when, you know, when the hitman murders somebody, it's not just the hitman that goes to jail. It's the person who hired the hitman. I need you. We need you to find out who hired. Get the hitman, you know. And that was a very common theme uh, throughout the day. And I know that this is something that you talk about quite a bit. Uh, What are your thoughts on on how that went today? Well, I didn't actually watch all of it just because um, there have I've got to admit it's it's getting to me. You know, this whole um everything that's happening to our democracy, everything, the way that the media is treating it. I saw some uh, bits and some footage on Twitter and yeah, it it blew my mind. And I'm grateful that these officers said the truth. I know they referred to uh, the people who attacked the the capitalist terrorists and they are. I I feel like I'm not exactly sure what will come of this hearing. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I don't think it's going to convince. I, I talk about a family member that I have who's a MAGA and I can guarantee this family member will not be persuaded. She is going to stick to whatever she hears from Fox and, and for the rest of it. But what I'm hoping is that with the Capitol Police testifying and watching their emotional testimony, I think, I hope will affect, uh, you know, I know that it was on every channel. So I'm hoping that there are people out there, there's so many of them who really can't be bothered with politics because they're so busy just feeding their family and paying their bills. I'm hoping that they see this and that 
because of it, there is some kind of collective swell to go in the right direction because I don't, I, I feel, oh, what's the word? I don't want to say that I feel negative, but I, I feel cautious, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to be hopeful because I, I just, I don't know how this is going to go. And I mean, I think their um, testimonies were incredibly moving and incredibly important. And I'm so grateful that they were televised. But, but what does that mean, uh, you know, with media, when you have m- news media, both sides in it, and, you know, we've got one party that's not even a party anymore. It's just like a cult uh, fascist group. And then they commit insurrection and you have like Politico or somebody saying Dems in disarray. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's so angry. Mm-hmm. And by the way, am I allowed to be profane on this show? Fuck yes, you are. <laughs> All right, good. So yeah, I just, I, I'm grateful for what they did, but I'm like, I don't want to say cautiously optimistic. I'm just cautious. <laughs> you know, like I want to be hopeful. Well, yeah, but well, there's not been much over the past four years that has given us cause to be optimistic. And you bring up Officer Hodges. I think he kept referring yeah. to them as terrorists and then brought receipts, pulled out the, the law about of domestic terrorism, read the definition of a terrorist because somebody said, you know, you keep saying terrorists. And he's like, yeah, well, here's the here's the law. And I have to say how thankful I am yeah. that Jim Jordan isn't in the room. Oh, my God, I know. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know what's going to come of this. And we also, you know, there's a lot of really brilliant lawyers who are on this committee. And I know that they have to be working closely with the Department of Justice to ensure that they don't interfere with with, with the work, the criminal investigations. But we you know because we remember Iran-Contra and how those hearings really kind of kneecapped the Justice Department on criminal investigations. Right, yeah. So they have to be very careful. But the DOJ did come out with a decision today saying that they will not exert or assert executive privilege mm-hmm. for Trump DOJ officials who are called to testify mm-hmm. with the insurrection. And I, <laughs> my, like, yeah, <laughs> I breathed a big sigh of relief when, when yeah. that happened because... <laughs> You know, with some of the other decisions they've made recently, mm-hmm. but you know, I was I was worried about that one. Right. Yeah. No, that's definitely a sigh of relief. And again, you know, I mean, it's it's really difficult to determine. I guess you know, I mean, some people have already made their minds up about Merrick Garland and the DOJ. I know, like for instance, I saw a tweet from Sherry Jacobus, just very upset with both Christopher Ray and uh, what's his name, who I just said, who's I don't know why it just flew out of my head. Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland, thank you. She is pretty much like, she said, we're fucked. And I'm not going to go there yet. I think that there, you know, yesterday I spoke with uh, Brooklyn Dad Defiant and he said that as far as Merrick Garland is concerned, he doesn't believe he has the fangs or the talons needed for that job. I will agree with him there, but I'm not ready at this point to completely just say, uh, I'm done with him and I, I have no hope. I'm not exactly sure what he's going to do. And I also talked with Noel Kasler on my show and he was saying, you know, look, we don't have time. We got to get these people subpoenaed. We got to do this. We got to do that. If they're going to build a case against whether it's insurrectionists or the people who, uh, you know, like Trump or the people like Ted Cruz or Marjorie Taylor Greene, any of those people who seem to kind of like encourage that or incite the insurrection, that case needs to be so tight. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not a law person. I don't know. I don't know the legal ins and outs of anything. You're obviously way more, uh, you know, educated on that than I am. 
but I know that that is very difficult to prove. And I had, you know, I keep talking about people on my show, but I had Terry Canefield, a lawyer on my show, and she was saying that would really be a tough sell Mm. that, for instance, with Trump. So um, I don't know, going back to Garland, I just feel like I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I, I kind of take the same thing. I just have this cautious feeling. I, I feel you caught me on a day too, where I'm just like, oh my God, I'm just f- kind of freaked out. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I go up and down and I'm kind of on a down day with a freak out. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm with you on that. And I, I have a couple of red lines for Merrick Garland uh, and he hasn't crossed any of those red lines yet. He came real close with the Eugene Carroll decision. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Because I just do not buy the argument that that defending himself in a defamy, you know, case about rape is part of his job. Exactly. Yeah. And that was the argument. Well, he's the president. He has to sort of push those back for whatever reasons. I don't see that that's part of his job. But there are some my red lines are if Merrick Garland announces that he is not going to pursue obstruction of justice charges against Donald Mm -hmm. Trump. Mm -hmm. That would freak that would freak me out. Yeah. It really would. Because even super conservative Mueller is into it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, I can't even, I can't even. Okay. And then another thing, first of all, the DOJ came out with, with the, well, they made the decision on the E. Jean Carroll case. They came out today with another case just like that. Sundland. Remember Sundland from the first impeachment? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We even have to say the first impeachment. 70 years. Yeah. (laughs) It was 84 years ago. Sundlin was told by Pompeo that the State Department would pay his legal fees until Sundlin started testifying that it was a quid pro quo. And then Pompeo made the decision not to have the State Department pay the legal fees. And whether you agree with that decision or not, the DOJ said that is within the scope of Pompeo's duties. So we're asking to dismiss this case. And, you know, we're going to stand on that side. That decision I'm kind of okay with. I mean, it sucks, but like... That does seem like that's within it's within his the scope of his job, whether or not the State Department is going to pay legal fees for for one of their employees. Yeah. But there there's there is a decision due out today. Merrick Garland was given till today as to whether or not they were going to do this with Mo Brooks. And when Mo Brooks incited the riot, was he acting within the scope of his job? Because that's his defense in a civil suit against him. Mm-hmm. And I know that Swalwell's lawyer was concerned when the E. Jean Carroll case happened because he thought that, you know, Trump is being civilly sued, too. And the Department of Justice at some point is going to have to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to do that. They're going to defend, you know, be on Trump's side, saying that was within, you know, his, his speech at the ellipse was within his duty. Uh, yeah. So those are those if they come out and say that they want to dismiss Mo Brooks and that inciting a riot, a, a sedition, a, you know, a seditious insurrection is within the scope of his job. That'll be the end of it for me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, this is such a difficult situation. I mean, as somebody I used to, I tweeted about this today. You know, I lived in Russia in 1981. I was only 12. My father worked for a major news network. And so he was a cameraman and, we, you know, I just happened to be there. So I am in no way an expert on communism or Soviet rule or anything, but I got to experience it. And I got to experience such a deep, I have a deeper understanding than most people mm-hmm. of, the coldness and the cruelty of Vladimir Putin. I mean, I never met him or anything, but there were like many Vladimir Putins everywhere or like, you know, extensions of him literally. uh, Now, granted, this was communist Russia, but it was, and and they're not communist anymore, 
But at the time, it was the KGB and Putin is KGB. He is KGB for life. Yeah. And I mean, mm-hmm. there were like literally uh, militia, there was militia men on every corner and they would stand in these, it looked like a phone booth for those who remember. And, you know, it's cold and they're, they're, they're in there with their hats and their beady eyes staring at you and making you feel like you're a criminal. They would break into our apartment all the time. And as a 12 year old, I, I didn't, I mean, I understood communism to a degree, but it was also because I was so young it was almost like a game to me. And so I would set traps in my home oh. and I would, you know, I could see that they, you know, do little pieces of hair around a doorknob or something like that. And, and they would be broken when I got home. They would, they would go through our stuff when, you know. And so I bring this up because even though I don't believe America is going to turn into Soviet Russia, I do think if we don't get this right, if we don't prosecute the right people and hold right, the right people accountable, there's a very good chance you know, we can slip into that oligarchy that Russia is experiencing right now. And I do feel that Vladimir Putin is probably the most dangerous person on the planet right now. And that all ties into how we handle what basically his puppet did. If we, if we don't handle the insurrectionists and, and the people who are trying to dismantle democracy properly, I think it just is one step closer to bye-bye democracy. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't think that that's lost on on Merrick Garland, but I, I am waiting to see, and it, it'll be any minute now where we'll get that decision on the Mo Brooks thing, and that's that's really going to, because if they do it for Mo Brooks, they're going to do it for Donald Trump. Exactly. In the, yeah, they're going to call that. That's within the scope of their duties. I do not see how seditious language uh, inciting an insurrection, uh, uh, inciting a coup yeah. to overthrow the government could possibly be within the realm. It, it better not be. And I'm hoping it's not it's not going to be. But, uh, you know, you bring up a good point with this accountability. And I want to talk more about that. But I have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Sure. All right. Great. Everybody will be right back. After the- Hey, Beans listeners, it's AG. It seems like I'm always writing under a deadline. I write 24 hours a day. I write like 200 pages a week. It's a lot of writing. And then I do emails and I prepare interview questions. I write ad copy. It always feels like there's a lot of pressure to get it done in time, but I still need to get the wording right. You know, just what I'm trying to say. And think of how much easier it would be to write if an expert was available to look over your drafts whenever you needed. With WordTune, you have exactly that. You have that writing partner at your fingertips. You don't have to agonize over every word. With WordTune, you can hit deadlines on time every time. WordTune instantly provides options of what you're trying to say based on your original words that can help you take your writing to the next level. I just started using WordTune. I can't believe how intuitive it is. I highlight a sentence. I want to rewrite. I click the WordTune icon. It immediately presents me with a number of alternate options to use. I click the one I like best if I want to use it, and instantly I have a newly phrased version of the sentence. I can even use options to shorten or lengthen the sentence or reword it with casual or more formal tones as needed. WordTune is the first AI-driven online writing tool that understands meaning. So you always feel confident your written work is, uh, you know, sounding as intelligent as you are. It's uh, authentic and clear. The app understands your intent, not just the meaning of the individual words, but what you're trying to convey. It's ideal for professional writers looking for an edge, managers aiming to make their point perfectly, or anyone whose, you know, writing could use an occasional tune-up. WordTune works anywhere you're working online. Google Docs, Slack, Outlook, the web, WhatsApp, Outlook on the web. Listeners can try WordTune for free at wordtune.com slash dailybeans. If you're away from your computer, go to wordtune.com slash dailybeans on your mobile phone. Enter your email and we'll send you a link to make it easy to get started. 
Get help writing your emails, reports, presentations, resumes, blogs, scripts for your shows, whatever you're doing. Do it today. Go to WordTune, W-O-R-D-T-U-N-E dot com slash Daily Beans. Everybody, welcome back. We are talking to author Kimberly Johnson. She's the host of the Start Me Up podcast, and she wrote a great book called Peyton's Choice. I recommend everybody needs to read it. Before the break, Kimberly, we were talking a little bit about accountability, and we have to get this right. And that was the sentiment that a lot of these, that the the officers testifying today in front of the select committee on the insurrection were really trying to push, push across. The, you know, we were we were defending democracy that day, and that and they said they would do it again. And I want you to talk a little bit more about uh, about the accountability piece because that's sort of why I had mentioned earlier that if the Department of Justice decides not to charge the former president with obstruction of justice or pursue those charges, which they don't have to do any work, Mueller did all the fucking work. (laughs) He even like listed how the elements were met. I mean, it's perfect. It's all laid out for you. Like it's it's a gift that somebody said to me, yeah, well, you know, the Merrick Garland might decide not to because New York's going to get him, you know, (laughs) and that's the wrong answer. That's like people saying we shouldn't impeach the president because it'll never make it through the Senate. We have to do this. We will be derelict in our duty if we do not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, you can go back to the the crimes of the Bush administration and, you know, they did waterboarding, they did torture and Obama chose not to go after them for that. And on some level, I can understand the logic. If you're dealing with parties that are, you know, o- obeying the Constitution and, and trying to keep democracy going, which I mean, okay, the Bush, Cheney, Rove, all those people, they were criminals. They're not like Trump. They were quieter and they weren't, they weren't stomping, you know, stomping all over democracy in the way that Trump did it. But you know, I saw Chris Hayes talking about this and he was saying he believed, and I believe this too, that Obama should have held, the Obama administration, I should say, the DOJ should have held the Bush administration accountable for war crimes. And I think the idea on this is that, well, if we do it, then they're going to do it and then it's going to be never ending. And yeah, that totally makes sense. Like you don't want to get into that war, but we are now past the point and I think we were then, maybe it was hard for Obama to see it. And I'm, and I'm not saying that I saw it, but right now, I think we're at a place where if we lose, if Democrats lose 2022 and 2024, we lose our democracy. And then we're just going, it doesn't matter if every single Democrat completely obeyed the law and did everything 100% legally right, and every, they will go to jail. We are, we are in a situation now where, okay, in the past, we... We missed some, we should have maybe held them accountable for, accountable for war crimes because of what you just said. I mean, it's just it's the, it's what it looks like. It's what's right, what, what we should do for history's sake. Um, now, if we don't do it, uh, I think we're totally screwing ourselves because I guarantee you, if it's just like everybody says, if the, if the, I was going to say the Russians, if the Republicans had the control now, they would, they would do what they wanted to do with the filibuster. So, the fact that we are, I don't know, I don't know what the fuck's wrong with the Democrats, but um, <laughs> I know that it's not all of them. A lot of them are really trying. And there's a few people that are holding it up. And it's just, it's, but I think the accountability is important for history. And it's important because the American people want to see it. I mean, if when you're on political Twitter all day, like I am, yeah. that's what we want to see. I know there's a lot not paying attention, but there's a whole hell of a lot of people who are. And, you know, I mean, I know Fox watching conservatives 
who were maybe not full on anti-Trumpers, but when they saw what happened at the Capitol, they were really disgusted. So yeah, accountability is pretty much everything. Yeah. And, and you know who else is watching and who else is paying attention is the next yes. despot. Yes. Who would be smarter and swifter probably than the last one that we had to fail to hold accountable. And I, I'm with you. I think Obama should have held Bush accountable because that sent the wrong message and it led to where we are now. Part of it. Not not, you know, fully. But right. You know, when when. When a president can say they'll never come after me or I can just delay it in the courts for two years until it's moot or they don't hold past presidents accountable and they don't indict sitting presidents so I can do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah, that's the message that you that that this DOJ will send if they don't get it right this time. So we'll be watching for that Mo Brooks decision because I think it's extremely. Yeah, it's going to tell us a lot about about where things are going. The E. Jean Carroll case is also absolutely ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. I don't want people to think that I'm not 100 percent against that bullshit decision either. Mm-hmm. And also holding back the second half of the Bar 2019 memo. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. That was a weak ass argument. And I hope it loses in court. <laughs> I mean, and it, it, it's so upsetting because, you you know, you're a citizen vote and you pay your taxes and you do what you're supposed to do. And, you know, we're also fortunate to live in a country like this, I mean, that's going back to living in Russia. That was what that was when I understood the word patriot. I understood that fully because, and I had it used to be my pin tweet, but it isn't anymore. Living there, it you know, in communist Russia, felt like living in a prison with privileges. So, you know, it, it was there. There was so much about it that was kind of. I mean, there's beauty. Obviously, there's some beauty, and and really, it that beauty was for the wealthy. Um, what the common person experienced in Russia, the common Russian, yeah. was awful. It was, you know, it was terrible. It was depressing. And like I said, you were made to feel like a criminal when you were walking down the street. I was a 12-year-old geek with these like thick glasses and I was a full-on geek. And these militiamen would stare at me as if I had secrets from, you know, the worst, their worst enemy. In fact, I have a little funny story just to sidetrack, but my girlfriend her father was a diplomat. So she lived in the American embassy. This is just how bad they are. She lived in the American embassy and there was this entrance into the embassy that you could drive through. And it was like this little tunnel. So in front of the tunnel were two Russian guards. And my goal in life when I would stay with my girlfriend was to torture those guards. And I would throw eggs at them and I would mess with them. So uh, my girlfriend and I decided we were going to screw around with them. And we got a couple of magazines just you know, mag like uh, Time magazine or whatever it was, and we put them. We, we wrapped them up in the paper that we like. Russians didn't have bags; they had this like brown paper that they would wrap a certain way. And so we did this with three or four of the magazines, and I wrote on it in my twelve-year-old scrawl, "Secret document." <laughs> and so we're running past them, and I accidentally drop "secret document" so they could see it. And then I pick it up and I act like, oh, no, oh, no, they saw. And then, you know, we run around to the side of the building and I, there was just some little place. I don't know what it was, but we left the secret documents there and we went back into her place. And several hours later, we came out and the secret documents were gone. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine what they were thinking about us. I don't even know because how could you take us seriously? But I mean, that that was the whole point. And I think that I bring this up just because I feel so terrified 
of the direction we're going in. I mean, this this whole morning, I have been thinking about, oh my God, oh my God, what, what, what if we lose? What will this country look like? Like, will you and I still be able to do what we do? And I don't know that we could. Yeah. I know I went off on a tangent, but no, that's, that's I- a, that was an amazing story. It kind of reminded me of what Nunez did. <laughs> <laughs> it is Uber to the White House with his secret I- documents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got there. <laughs> oh, no, that's really that's and it's 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 an important point too. what you're making is that that's the fear. That's what we could lose. You know, our our democracy or a republic if you if you want right. to you know be a republican about it <laughs> yeah, exactly oh and just to fit you know like because i was uh, saw all that and and i realized what patriotism meant because it was like i didn't really understand patriotism at 12 years old um and i was frightened to go over there I don't, I didn't know what to expect, but then, you know, when I did get over there, it was like, oh, wow, it was fascinating. And I didn't really fear for my life or for my safety or anything like that, but it was, you know, I could really see, I mean, and, and one quick other little story, my father, one day he was driving me to a doctor's appointment and I don't, he must not have been paying attention because he wound up hitting a parked car, but, but it was in the middle of the road because it was weird Russian road. Anyway, so he hit his parked car and it turned out to be a Russian official's car. And oh my God, like we, we were held for hours and hours and we were being questioned and they questioned me and I was 12 in the passenger side. So again, it just, it's like that. I don't think we're going to communism, but I think we can go to a place that resembles some of that uh, behavior and energy, he, you know, we can get there. And people don't think we can because they've never experienced it. But I no. know we can. And, and I mean, think about this law that's, that hopefully will get blocked in, in Texas where they're putting $10,000 bounties on pregnant women who get uh, abortions. Yeah. And that's to circumvent being able to be sued because normally it's the government that carries out the punishment. In this case, they're letting citizens do it and they're rewarding them with money. Think that's that's Iliad level shit. It totally is. Yeah. And if the republic, if we lose, that's the kind of shit that's going to be put in place. No abortions, no birth control, or you have to have your husband sign off on it or, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and it happens little by little and, and mm-hmm. it, it, they push and push until it seems normal. And then all of a sudden you're, you're in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so. absolutely. And I, you know, one of the things that crosses my mind frequently is, okay, let's just say worst case scenario happens and Republicans win, you know, like you said, they're going to do things in increments, but I think if they take control, it, things would happen a lot faster than we might expect. But what I think about is would Americans stand up and fight back? And truthfully, I think it would take decades. I think it would take people having to be so worn down if they're going to fight back. I mean, you look at what's happening in other countries, I mean, even in Russia, they're fighting back, but what they're not accomplishing anything because the Russian government is just, I mean, they might as well become communist in in the way that they rule. And so I think sometimes people have this false idea that if, if Republicans take over that, oh, we're just going to storm and, but we're not, because if we go out and we protest, we could go to jail and people are going to want to feed their kids and make sure their kids are healthy and they're going to be left alone. And I think it was Tim Wise, um, who was on my show, who said, 
I think it was 19, he brought up 1984 and he said, you know, basically the guy just wanted to be, just leave me alone. Let me watch my TV and leave me alone and I won't cause any problems. And I think that's what we would see more than anything. And it's like, it's preventable right now. Yeah. And and people are very fatigued. So yeah, they are. And I just don't want us to get to a place where fighting won't even matter anymore. Yeah. Agreed. Well, we still haven't heard. Keep refreshing my pacer. We still don't know if Mm. this DOJ is going to let Mo Brooks off the hooks, but uh, we will find out and uh, I will keep you posted. And thanks for coming today and talking to me and everybody. You have to listen to the Start Me Up podcast. (laughs) Amazing guests, incredible discussions. And uh, pick up Peyton's Choice if you if you get a chance. Seriously, excellent book. Well, thank you. And I, I, I'm sorry I do feel like a downer today, but I'm just being honest. So thank you for having me on. <laughs> Maybe we'll get some good news out of the Justice Department and we can all perk up and have a, a white wine spritzer or something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, everybody. Kimberly Johnson. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Hello, everybody. It's Allison Gill. Do you ever feel worn out after a day of staring at the computer screen and your phone screen and your TV screen and your iPad screen and your laptop screen? I mean, screens all day, right? Especially me. I'm glued to the news. And my eyes were watering. I was getting fatigue and headaches. I couldn't figure out what it was. I thought I was just, you know, working too much. But as it turns out, I was getting that blue light from the screens. But thankfully, I found the solution to the blue light blues. My answer is blue blocks. B-L-U-B-L-O-X. I love these. They have a variety of amazing glasses designed to solve these specific problems. I got the blue light computer glasses because I'm in front of screens all day. They have clear lenses and they help with the headaches, sore eyes, digital eye strain, watery eyes and fatigue. Perfect. Everything I needed help with. They're easy to use. You just wear them. They're glasses. (laughs) Blue light computer glasses. You wear them during the day when you're working on screens or under artificial light. It really helps with those fluorescent lights in office buildings. They also have other glasses with lenses designed to help with migraines and stress, anxiety or low mood. They help with poor sleep, fatigue, low energy and jet lag. Blue Block stylish frames have also been featured in GQ and Vogue. I love these frames. They are so awesome. And their science-backed technology, yay, science, is tested to ensure that they actually work. They've helped me immensely. I didn't realize how much I was straining until I started wearing these. And now it's like, oh, no more digital eye strain, no more headaches. I highly recommend them for anyone who has to stare at screens a lot. With glasses for every need, though, Blue Block's glasses come in non-prescription, prescription, and reading options, too. They also have low blue light bulbs, which are great, red light therapy devices, which are awesome, and my favorite, the 100% blackout sleep masks. I love these, all backed by science. Yay, science. Blue Block ship worldwide in rapid time and always have easy returns and exchanges. So go to blueblocks.com slash dailybeans and use coupon code dailybeans, all one word, to save 15%. That's blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash dailybeans and use that coupon code dailybeans to get 15% off. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Today, this is a kind of a cool story. I took an online lecture and the person giving it actually is a professor of history and public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. I asked if he knew Steve Vladek. We had a very nice little bit of candor there. He's also the author of many books, including Sustainable Security, Rethinking American National Security Strategy, and most recently, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest office. And he's he's also the host of an incredible podcast called This is Democracy. Please welcome Jeremy Surrey. Thanks for having me on, Allison. I'm so glad we got connected during that lecture on uh, Franklin Roosevelt, I think it was, right? It was. It was. I did that through, I think, Context Travel, who was a sponsor yeah. of this show. And then but it was just it was awesome to meet you. And I and I came and appeared on your show. And now I wanted you to come and talk on mine because being professor of history, public affairs, and a lot of stuff about national security and democracy within your brain. And we 
had a really interesting thing happen recently in the news. First of all, happy birthday. It's your birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm not 50 yet, so I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to the fact that I'm under 50. Yeah, samesies, samesies. We're sort of getting this new national security look with, I think it was in 2019, July of 2019, when Elijah Cummings put out a report on nuclear secrets with the Middle East. And it had a lot to do with a couple of fellas named Tom Barrick and Al Malik. And we just recently got a very big indictment and not under the normal FARA Foreign Agents Registration Act, but under what basically we charge spies with a 951, which is it's, it's, it's a FARA rule, but it's more about people who are acting at the, the direction of, of foreign governments, high officials up at, in this particular instance, United Arab Emirates. My first thought went to national security immediately because we have a lot of people in his sort of orbit, including Jared Kushner, people who worked on the pick, the inaugural, Gates, Manafort, Al Malik, for example, and of course, his uh, executive assistant Grimes, I believe his name is. But that was my very first concern there was national security. And I was wondering what you think the appetite of this particular Department of Justice is to go after these national security threats, despite facing, you know, the daunting idea of prosecuting political enemies, so to speak. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I think it's probably one of the most important questions we have to consider right now. And um, I think it's it, it's a difficult question because there's no doubt that Attorney General Garland uh, is seeking to uh, protect our democracy in his terms by going after uh, insurrectionists and others, but also trying to avoid appearing to be a politis- political actor. And justice is always political. There's no apolitical justice. And so that's that's part of the, the challenge here. And I, I respect uh, Attorney General Garland as a as a great judge. Right. He, he perceives and believes impartiality is crucial, but impartiality is mythical. Also, we know that. Uh, so that's part of the issue here. I do think, though, that the national security issues will get more attention. And I think that for two reasons, um, there are a lot of people, as, as you know well, from your own experiences, Allison, uh, in uh, the intelligence agencies in the world of national security in DOD who care very deeply about this. They, they've built their entire lives around this. And, and this is life and death for them. Uh, and we might find that some of the secrets that were spilled, some of the uh, connections that were made, some of the actions that were taken resulted in American deaths. I'm sure we will find that. And uh, that motivates people. Uh, That motivates people within the bureaucracy, as you know, to do things. And that will put pressure on the Justice Department uh, coming from the national security side of the House. The second uh, reason why I think we'll get action on this is because uh, of just what we're doing now, because of public conversation about it. This is a story that has only just begun. Mm, we've only just begun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That, that's that's a more pleasant singing of it. But yes, it's a, we, we, we're deep, deep in the morass here and we're going deeper and deeper. We're going to find much more and it's not going to end with Barrick. I mean, what, what we know about about him is that he's a consummate networker. And what he's done, he wasn't acting as a lone wolf. This is this is not uh, this. This is in some ways worse than than Manafort. You know, Manafort is someone who set up a shop as the guy you bring in to do the dirty work for you. Barrick is the person who builds organizations that do dirty work, and uh, there's no reason to believe that he and his uh, assistant, who were both indicted, that they are at the end of the story. They're at the beginning of the story. So as more comes out, there'll be more public pressure, and this is a sexy story. Because readers care about national security, they understand why national security matters in a way that's sometimes difficult 
when you're talking about obstruction of justice or when you're talking about tax schemes. Those get very complicated. National security is pretty simple. We had an individual here who we have reason to believe was working for a foreign government, pursuing that foreign government's interests against the interests of the United States government, using his access to the White House to put forth the interests of another country, not our own, uh, in the common parlance that my undergraduates use, that's called treason. Yeah, and successfully influence policy. There hasn't been any, you know, smoking guns, so to speak, about whether or not they didn't get that meeting at Camp David or I mean, that's actually in the indictment. But, you know, more specifically, the Qatar blockade and then the removal of the blockade, even though Qatar is a huge ally and we have a giant military base there, just all sorts of weird like we were all scratching our heads about some of these this policy. Where did it come from now? Now we we might know. And I think that aside from national security, accountability is something that I hope and I would think and suspect that Merrick Garland would embrace because I'll never forget when Andy McCabe said to me, and this will always stick with me, he said that with regards to Crossfire Hurricane, the Trump Russia investigation, we would be derelict in our duty if we didn't open an investigation. Right. And so I right. can't see Merrick Garland escaping these kinds of investigations in the name of moving forward. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And um, I, I think what we're also going to find is that there are money transfers as well. So far, Barrick has claimed uh, that this, this was not about money. Well, everything he does is about money, right? Just as everything Trump does is about money, right? So this is not an Oliver North case, which was bad enough, right? The Oliver North situation was a zealot who didn't make money over breaking the law to sell arms to the Contras, but actually was just breaking the law because he thought it was the right thing to do. This Here we have someone who's just a monetarist who's doing this for his own interests. And so this gets into a financial crime uh, as well. And, and it can't be ignored. I think you're absolutely right. And so long as the press continues to cover this, uh, and so long as there is never a, a successful cover up of it, uh, this will the story will continue. Yeah. And what do you think about the fact that, you know, these interviews took place in 2019? He broke the laws in 2016, 2017, going on into early 2018 and um, then lied, misled. He's got a couple of uh, 1001 counts there in that 46 page indictment. But this was all being pursued under, you know, especially in 2019, under Bill Barr's Department of Justice. This was going on in in the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn. I don't know if they sort of sat on it until he left office. I, I, I imagine they might have in order to prevent a pardon. I'm, I was surprised Trump didn't pardon Barrick when he was on his way out the door. But I think it's of note that if the Justice Department was willing to pursue these charges under Barr. There's no way they wouldn't be able and willing to pursue them under Merrick Garland. Correct. But we don't know how much Barr knew and whether Barr was supportive or ignorant or only knew a little bit, which was, you know, non-representative. Or if they didn't come to him with any asking for any permission. Exactly. What we do know is that the Eastern District, like the Southern District in New York, is well known for being dogged in its pursuit of criminals and being remarkably effective. And this is how our justice system does work. Your show rightly covers a lot of the things that don't work in our society. The Eastern and Southern District of New York actually work really well in pursuing exactly these kinds of people. Bad actors who use all kinds of fronts and misuses of the law to cover up their financial and political crimes. Some of the most experienced and dogged pursuers of them are in these offices. 
Uh, we do know, of course, that Barr tried to defang the Southern District by putting his own um, goons in there. Uh, that was partially resisted not entirely resisted. Uh, my guess is that this flew under the radar screen Yeah, and, uh, and intentional. And the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office as well with the Jesse Liu ouster promised a job. She was promised number three at DOJ, didn't take it, said she wanted to stay in D.C. Then she was told she was going to go to the Treasury. And while she's walking to her new office, they withdrew her nomination and That's stuck right. somebody else in there. That's right. Now, I, I want to ask you a little bit about restoring faith in our institutions, which I think is extremely important as we move forward, and I'm sure is a number one consideration on Merrick Garland's mind. But I have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Sure. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. It's Allison Gill with Daily Beans. This segment of the pod is brought to you by Upstart. When you carry a credit balance month after month, it can feel like you're trapped in an endless cycle of debt because you just make the minimum payments and it, nothing ever happens. <laughs> it just keeps the debt just keeps piling up because the interest rates are so high. But you can make that final payment with Upstart, and then you can get ahead. Upstart is an online personal loan service. They help you pay off your debt fast. More than half a million people have used Upstart to consolidate high-interest debts and pay off high-interest credit cards or fund personal expenses with simple fixed monthly payments. Other lenders only look at your credit score, but Upstart knows you're more than just a number, so they look at your employment history and your income, and they can offer smarter rates based on that with their trusted partners. With just a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front, and you can compare it with those high interest rates that you're paying right now. And you can see that on loans between $1,000 to $50,000. Upon approval of your loan, funds can be available as quickly as one business day. So I know a lot of gig workers, and I know a lot of friends of mine who are artists and comedians, people who craft stuff, and uh, writers. And st they, We've been living off our credit cards during the pandemic, and you know a lot of my uh, friends who are in the bartending industry, too, especially... You need to check out Upstart and find out how they can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash dailybeans. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and other certain information you provide in your loan application. Just head to upstart.com slash dailybeans. And today's show is also brought to you by this amazing new podcast, The Times Podcast. Weekday mornings, the story begins in California. You can get a West Coast perspective on stories shaping policy and opinion with The Times. This is a daily news podcast from the Los Angeles Times. Each weekday morning, listen to Gustavo Ariano and a diverse range of voices reporting from California the most critical issues of the day. From immigration to income inequality, climate change to racial justice, nativism to technology, The Times explores the contradictions and hard truths of the Golden State and the nation through a West Coast perspective. I am certain you will enjoy the in-depth coverage and unique stories as much as I do. Featuring interviews and original reporting, the Times podcast helps you understand the world and how California impacts it. We're the fifth largest economy, y'all, in the world. If an issue that affects California hasn't reached your town yet, it will soon. Award-winning reporting, compelling investigations, and L.A. eccentricities, which are my favorite, are what you can expect from the largest newspaper west of the Mississippi. New episodes of The Times are available every weekday. To listen and subscribe, go wherever you get your podcasts and search for The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. You'll be glad you did. Everyone, we're talking with professor of history and public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and also author of the most recent book, Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and listen to his podcast called This is Democracy, Jeremy Surrey. Jeremy, before the break, I had briefly mentioned I wanted to talk to you about something that is incredibly, incredibly important going forward, which is restoring faith in the institutions that the former administration just demolished with the use of you know, with weaponizing the Justice Department, for example, we'll just go there. How do you see we can move forward with 
I mean, I guess accountability and transparency are two big things here. But how do we move forward? But but carefully to still maintain some of the policies, for example, oh, I don't know, the uh, deliberative process privilege that uh, is being guarded right now by the Justice Department in the case of releasing the entirety of the 2019 March Bill Barr memo, for example, just one example. But how do we go forward and restore faith in in this, particularly in the Justice Department, because for so long, none of us believed that the Justice Department was doing justice. Right, right. I I think faith in institutions historically comes from two things. It comes, number one, from people believing that uh, those running those institutions are actually trying to do their job and serve the interests of the public. And I think the perception of public service really matters a lot. And our justice system, has been built upon the notion that those who are in these jobs do not serve the person who appointed them, but actually serve the law. That's why it's so important that Supreme Court justices don't say, uh, we're making this decision because this president appointed us, right? Even though that was certainly motivating someone like Justice Scalia in the Bush v. Gore decision. But nonetheless, they have to provide some alternative explanation to make it look like they're doing things out of the public interest. And then the second thing uh, is uh, about transparency. We have to understand how they operate. We don't We don't have to understand every detail. We can't. Even those of us who are scholars of this, uh, we really can't understand every single detail. But there has to be some modicum of transparency, which allows us to, to believe that we see inside the kitchen and we know that the, that the cook is not sneezing on our food in the kitchen, right? That the kitchen is not infested with rats, uh, as it was under Trump, right? Uh, and so I think what the Justice Department has to do is they have to show that they are, uh, if cautiously still, pursuing those who have broken the law, even if it's uncomfortable. Um, and they have to explain how they're doing that. And that is why the example you gave is so crucial. The release of documentation is absolutely essential. We have to be able to read what is going on. We need to see what's still being withheld from the Mueller report. We need to see uh, the full bar memo. Uh, we need to see all of this. And the sooner that's released, uh, the better. As a historian, I'll say that withholding this kind of information from the public never helps the institution that's doing the withholding. It might help individuals. But it doesn't help the institution. Yeah. And there's some problems there. A lot of people are attacking this Justice Department uh, for some of the decisions that it's made. The Eugene Carroll case, the Lafayette Square case, the, but the second half of that Bill Barr memo I was telling you about. Yesterday, a story came out that, that this DOJ wasn't going to go after Wilbur Ross. But then there was a correction made by the Associated Press saying that was actually a Barr decision, although Merrick Garland could reopen and go into it. But more recently, there was reporting that they are actually seeking this Justice Department, which, again, was a bar thing. But Garland seems to be or at least this Justice Department seems to be pursuing it, too, which is a rule 6E change for grand jury materials that they want to keep those for 50 years. And that's sort of antithetical to the idea of transparency. And I was wondering what you thought of, first of all, all these people are just ready to jump on this Department of Justice with complaints at every turn because of what has happened the last four years. And I think that that was by design. But about this potential not being able to see the underlying grand jury materials from the Mueller investigation until 2069. So uh, I think it's actually very helpful that people, uh, especially those who are progressives, put pressure on this Justice Department. I think our system works best with checks and balances. I, I'm a Madisonian in this sense, right? Uh, and the people are the most important check. And so this pressure has to be there. Now, that does not always mean that uh, a good Justice Department will do everything it's being pressured to do. But that pressure is incredibly helpful. So listeners, keep that pressure on. 
keep that pressure on. It's important, though, then for Garland to be strategic. He has to choose his battles. Uh, just in terms of the number, the staffing he has, the resources, there is so much corruption from the Trump administration that we could have three justice departments and we still wouldn't have enough staff. Right. So he's got to choose his battles. And most of us would say go after the big fish. But he has to also go after those who he thinks he's most likely to get. And he has to figure out which are the places that are going to make the most sense for long term accountability and the restoration of justice and partiality and what we're looking for. And so I think he's going to have to make some choices there. And I so far, I trust that he's trying to make the right choices. And I also trust that the public pressure will hold his feet to the fire and hold Biden's feet to the fire on this. Now, the longer release time on the grand jury documents, I don't understand that. I read that story as well. I've asked a few people who I thought knew about this and they didn't know about it. So uh, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about that because I do think documents should be released sooner than later. I do understand why grand jury documents are often withheld for some time. Uh, You want people to feel uh, comfortable testifying against uh, powerful people. And you want to allow the deliberative process to work without being messed up by social media and intimidation and tampering with witnesses, which we know the Trump people were doing repeatedly. So I'm all for that. But why 50 years makes no sense to me. But I'm always fighting this this fight, Allison. You know, I'm still you know fighting with the CIA for documents from 40, 50 years ago that they're withholding. They're still withholding World War II documents from the OSS, right? So um, there is there is a problem in general. It's not just a Justice Department problem. It's a problem of our government having a bias toward keeping embarrassing materials undercover rather than releasing them to the public. And that has to change. And we need more presidential leadership on that. Yeah. All I want really is if you're going to make a decision like the Bill Barr memo, for example, tell us why. You know, we're not nine. All you got to do is come out, give a little press conference and say, we're not going to prosecute Wilbur Ross. And here's why, because he would get zero jail time and our resources are better spent looking at the insiders of the insurrection or but I mean, they, that would be giving away an open and ongoing investigation and they probably wouldn't do that. But you know what I mean? We, we need to reserve our resources for something else. But the fact that they kind of aren't telling us why they're doing things now in the Bill Barr memo, he they did lay out and it wasn't Garland. It was uh, somebody else at the at Justice laid out their argument for why they wanted to keep that second half of that Bill Barr memo secret. But it didn't, to me, stand up to the incredibly wonderful argument from Judge Amy Berman Jackson. Her legal arguments really seem to outweigh what the argument that the Justice Department put forward. So I appreciate that they made an argument, but it was a weak shit argument and I I don't agree with it. But at least they tried to tell me why. I wish they would do that with everything. Like, uh, And I guess they did with the E. Jean Carroll case too, but also to disagree with that decision. So I don't know. Well, well but the, the problem is that it's not clear these are decisions that are made yet, right? I mean, so it's very possible, I don't know, but it's very possible that Garland has not decided whether to prosecute Wilbur Ross yet. He might not be, it might not be a priority, but that doesn't mean he's decided not to do it. And once he comes out and says they're not prosecuting, right, then he's created a problem for himself. Yeah, that's, I'm with you on that because that's where I am on the, on the going after the head, the generals of the insurrection. Everyone's like, I haven't heard word one yet. And I, you know, I'm like, well, you didn't hear about Barrick either until he was in handcuffs. So right. we don't know it, it, until Garland comes out and says, I'm not going to do this. I, I'm not going to get mad about those specific things. We, we, they're, everyone's so black and white. Everything is so histrionic. If, if Merrick Garland represents the president, office of the presidency and Trump in the E. Jean Carroll case. That's it. He's in bed with Trump and Barr. But everything is so nuanced. And, and I think we need to look at these decision by decision. And, and you know, another one is whether or not he's going to pursue obstruction of justice 
charges against the former president, which is beautifully right. laid out in volume two of the Mueller report. And he hasn't right. come out and said he's not going to. And the statute of limitations doesn't toll until next year. So I'm waiting. Well, and I think he's probably waiting to see what happens with Cy Vance uh, and the other New York cases that are going forward, which every day and the Barrett case is part of that. Right. Uh, what, what happens there? What happens with the, the Trump organization? So there's a lot of information. These are dynamic situations. And we know there's a lot of wrongdoing. But there are, many, there are many different pathways forward in pursuing that. Uh, what I think is really important and what gives me some faith in Garland, though not uh, unimpeachable faith, yeah. but what gives me faith in Garland is this is a man who cut his teeth dealing with um, the Oklahoma City bombing. We know he cares deeply. And if you watch his testimony and you look at his career, this is deep to him uh, going after right wing terrorism, right wing uh, violence, white supremacists and others. He understands that threat better than any other attorney general we've had, including Janet Reno. And he's far more effective and experienced in dealing with these things than probably anyone in the U.S. government uh, right now. And I have every reason to believe that he is prioritizing that and that every single person who was involved with the insurrection on January 6th, which I think was the greatest threat to our democracy in our lifetimes, he is going to pursue that to the last scrap of paper and he will go after them uh, and their organizations. And I'm grateful for that. There's more he has to do beyond that. Mm -hmm. But I'm grateful that we have that kind of attorney general right now. Yeah, agreed. I, I concur. And, you know, I just sort of want to really drive home the point that I would hesitate to put Merrick Garland in the bad guy column until these decisions happen. Uh, even on something like the Gates charging decision is supposed to, there's been reported it's going to come out this month, July. That may have been pushed back by the fact that Greenberg asked for a continuance on his sentencing because there's so much criming in Central Florida, he couldn't possibly tell you all about it by August 19th. I don't know if that's going to get pushed back. But for people to be mad that Matt Gates hasn't been arrested yet, I think is counterproductive. I, I think we need to wait to hear a charging decision. And I think we'll know either way. I just hope that they if they don't, that they explain why. I, I completely agree. And um, I also recognize that the wheels of justice move slowly and hopefully steadily. And I want this to be done right. What we don't want to have is the situation we've had, quite frankly, in many cases before the George Floyd case, where prosecutors moved quickly against police wrongdoing or various other wrongdoing. And I honestly, we're not didn't have their ducks in a row for what are obvious examples of criminal wrongdoing, but still difficult to prove in a court of law. And so we want to make sure that the that the ducks are in a row. And I did want to also add that when we're evaluating um, Garland, uh, we should look at the other people he's appointed. Mm. And uh, he he has appointed one of the most impressive, diverse groups of highly progressive people, if I can say that, mm. in top positions at the Justice Department. I just wanted to single out, for instance, Vanita Gupta, yeah. uh, uh, who barely made it through through uh, the Senate, which which is a good thing, right? If you barely make it through the Senate, it means the Republicans are against you and they're against you for reasons that make me like you. <laughs> yeah. And when a bunch of criminals don't want you to be the cop, you know, <laughs> I like that cop. And and she, you know, she now oversees civil rights for the Department of Justice. I um, mean, she, she is a, a warrior for the protection of civil rights for underrepresented communities and uh, the prosecution of those who challenge and undermine civil rights. We, we think about who we've had in that position in the last four years and who we have now. Uh, and that's just one of many examples of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I concur. And a lot of these decisions aren't made specifically by Merrick Garland. So 
you know, we, we also need to keep that in mind. This is a massively vast department. And, you know, some of these bigger cases obviously go through go through the attorney general, but some of them don't. Some of them only go through heads of certain departments and some right. of them only go through the layer right. before that. So we have to kind of always right. keep that in mind. Well, I really appreciate your time today. And I want to encourage everyone to get The Impossible Presidency. It's a really, really wonderful book. And of course, I want to encourage everybody to listen to This Is Democracy, wherever you get your podcasts. And do you have any other thoughts on on justice and democracy before we get out of here, Professor? I do. I, you know, we didn't talk about the FBI, right? And uh, I'm torn on the Me FBI too. because, you know, I, <laughs> as a historian, uh, there are all these abuses by the FBI that we've seen. And I'm always concerned about that. Uh, the FBI surveillance of Martin Luther King, for example, right? And, and we could go on and on in this uh, direction. I, I think the FBI was not helpful to Black Lives Matter early on and, and organizations like that. So on the other hand, the professionalism of the FBI has been crucial in all of the investigations that we're talking about here. And I don't know enough about Christopher Ray beyond what all of us are seeing in public to have an evaluation of him. But I do think that the partnership between the Justice Department and the FBI, technically the FBI is within the Justice Department, but not really, as we know, uh, that's absolutely crucial. And uh, I think that's an area we need to have more of a public discussion about as a society. What is the appropriate way? This is a discussion we started 10 years ago and then we stopped. What is the appropriate role for the FBI? What is the appropriate oversight? Clearly, we should not have presidents like Trump firing an FBI director who won't do his dirty work. But what is the role of the FBI director? What kind of oversight should we have? These sorts of hearings we've been having with Christopher Ray right now yeah. are a joke. They don't really give us much insight at all. Um, so back to your point about public accountability and transparency, uh, I think that's a really big issue. We've only begun to scratch the surface. And again, I want to say I have respect for members of the FBI, but I worry about the history the organization has had. And so, um, you know, I think we need to have that discussion. I think we need to reform the way the FBI director is appointed and the kinds of oversight surrounding. Yeah, especially with uh, with Chris Ray. And I, the only thing I know is that he pushed back a little on Trump, but walked a line so he wouldn't get fired. And but the same could be said about Rosenstein. And and so, you know, right. and the only thing we know is that a, a bunch of FBI frontline people or people who work for the FBI wrote a letter to Biden saying, please keep him on. But but who were those people? Was it the New York FBI field office or, <laughs> you know, what are we talking about here? Right. So, right. Yeah. Right. And why didn't they do more to stop these right wing groups that in plain sight were preparing for an insurrection? They knew it's oh, it's always clearer in retrospect, uh, but that still doesn't negate the question. Right. What did they do? And why didn't they do more? Did they do all they could? And we don't really have answers to those questions yet. If I had my way, we would we would actually be investigating those. We'd have a blue ribbon panel appointed to actually investigate those uh, questions so we could get answers today. We've got the select committee, which what today Pelosi vetoed. This is, by the way, this is going to be airing about a week and a half, a couple of weeks after the news that popped out today. So we may be further along as this episode airs. I think they have hearings. I think they have hearings yeah, the next 27th. week, right? So they'll actually mm-hmm. have been- Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's going to be a bunch of interviews with Capitol Police officers, including Fanon. And then, of course, Pelosi vetoed Jim Banks and Jim Jordan. And is it Banks? Banks. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, as I thought, McCarthy took his toys and went home and pulled everybody off the commission. So we'll see what happens. Uh, We might have a clearer picture when this episode airs. 
But again, I appreciate your time today. Sure, and I sure. hope I hope we get to talk again soon. Me too. You take care. Thank All you right. very much. All right, everybody. That is our show. Thank you so much to Kimberly Johnson and Jeremy Surrey for speaking with me today. Absolutely wonderful conversations. We will be back with the regular format and the news tomorrow with swearing and all your favorites. That's tomorrow morning. And I, you know, I'm recording this, <laughs> recording this as you're listening to it six days before you're hearing this. Uh, so I can't imagine all of the incredible news that will happen after I sign off right now. But we're going to bring it to you tomorrow morning. I can't wait to see you then. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.